According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we are in the book of Jeremiah. We have uh, made it all the way to Jeremiah 36 today. Jeremiah 36. I realize it appears we've been in the prophets for 300 years and counting. But really, it's 66 Sundays in the book of Isaiah and 52 Sundays, or 36 out of 52 Sundays now in, uh, in Jeremiah. The end is in sight. With, uh, what's 52 minus 36? 16 more weeks to go and uh, to wrap this up. And as I counted it out, by the way, um, that gets us through with one week to spare, which is Easter Sunday, by the way, it gets us through before uh, my trip to Ukraine. I'm going to Ukraine in April. And so, uh, thankfully, the, uh, the Jeremiah class will wrap up with just a single Sunday to spare. How about that? So, I uh, don't have a lot of time to waste or, or to uh, surrender to other things. We've got to stay on schedule and uh, maintain the, the punctuality points before the Lord. Because there is, of course, reward in heaven for, uh, for being punctual, or at least for all things being done orderly, in an orderly manner. All right, Jeremiah chapter 36, in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Take a scroll and write on it all the words which I have spoken to you concerning Israel and concerning Judah and concerning all the nations from the day I first spoke to you from the days of Josiah, even to this day. All right, Jeremiah, you've been in ministry for 23 years. I've only been in 21 years. Well, I've got two more years to go to reach this chapter. You've been in ministry 23 years. Write down everything you've ever said. Put it on a scroll or on a very long scroll or on a collection of scrolls and preach it. Go have it read. And so all the contents of, of, uh, of Jeremiah's ministry up till this point are being put in writing and are being taken to the Jewish people. All right. Well, this is what we're going to deal with here today. The king won't be too happy. He's going to burn the scroll uh, in case you don't know how the, how the chapter ends. It's a long chapter, um, but it is not well received. And so the scroll gets burned and uh, has to be replaced. And uh, we'll deal with that here this morning. Before we get started, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking God to set aside distractions and to bless our time in his word today. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for your truth and rejoicing in your faithfulness, the blessings of your word. And Father, uh, I thank you for this chapter. I thank you for the uh, very tangible reminder of who we are and uh, the world we live in and the hostility that, uh, that, your wor- that this world reflects against your word and all the attempts Satan ever makes to destroy your word. Uh, none of it is fruitful. None of it can be accomplished. Because, Father, you preserve and defend your word, and we thank you for that. So bless our time of study this morning. Open the eyes of our understanding. I do thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we're looking at it here in these early (coughs) sections here, these early verses of the chapter. Jeremiah is commanded to produce a written transcript for every message given since his call to the ministry. 
from the, from the day I first spoke to you, from the days of Josiah, even to this day. Perhaps the house of Judah will hear all the calamity which I plan to bring on them, in order that every man will turn from his evil way. Then I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. So they heard it when he preached it and have promptly ignored it or rejected it or forgotten it. Now they're going to get it in writing. And this is uh, the first of several stages in the process whereby the spoken messages of Jeremiah are being recorded and will eventually be canonized and become a part of our Bible, part of our canon of Scripture. But early on, of course, it was not yet in written form. It was still in a spoken form. And uh, this is now the command to put these messages into writing so that if they have something to read, something to follow up with after uh, hearing it in the class, see, when they get the Galatians notebook in their hot little hands after two and a half years of, of uh, being a part of the Galatians series, for example, at Austin Bible Church, okay, pray for that. We're working on the Galatians notebook right now. Um, there's a benefit to having it, of course, in written form. So Jeremiah called Baruch. We've seen him once before earlier in the book, and now we have a, a longer glimpse of him. Jeremiah called Baruch, the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote on a scroll at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord which he had spoken to him. All right, and so this is something he's comfortable with. This is something he's done before. You might recall in an earlier chapter, there was uh, a real estate transaction that was taking place that somebody, a cousin, a family member of Jeremiah had come to him and had uh, offered him the uh, the blessing to be able to redeem a, uh, a, a parcel of land. And so in that chapter, Baruch was called in in order to notarize everything and, and uh, fill out the, the paperwork appropriately. So this is now our second look at Baruch. We'll be seeing a lot more of him in the coming chapters. In fact, he gets a whole chapter to himself that, uh, that we're going to tackle here. Uh, I think it's chapter 44 or 45 coming up in just a few weeks. Now, under this, um, the context, a very famous year, something we've studied in the past already. Uh, we're talking 605 B.C., uh, in case you've forgotten. Uh, the beginning of this chapter coincides with chapter 25. Also coming up in chapter 45 and chapter 46, it's a very famous year, the fourth year of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and uh, which actually is going to cross into the fifth year. By the time this writing is complete, it will be the fifth year in order to uh, put these, uh, this scroll together. So the beginning of this chapter coincides with chapters 25, 45, and 46, for in case you're charting it out, and we discussed at the beginning of this book study, Jeremiah is a nightmare for chronologically thinking people. The, the chapters are not chronological. They were never intended to be chronological, and so you kind of need a, a baseball scorecard to keep track of what was given when in, uh, in the order of things. But the greater part of this chapter takes place the following year. Uh, as you glance down to verse 9, you'll spot in the fifth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, in the ninth month, all the people of Jerusalem and all the people who came from the cities of Judah to Jerusalem proclaimed a fast before the Lord, proclaimed by the people, not by the king, not by the high priest, not by the prophet even, but by the people and those that were coming to Jerusalem, they proclaimed a fast before the Lord. And this is going to become the venue then for the great reading of the scroll that uh, Baruch is going to be assigned to do. And so, uh, so we're backing up a little bit sequentially from previous chapters, from previous studies, but we're okay with that. We're not, uh, not going to lose our place in uh, this process. 23 years of prophetic ministry 
are essentially the contents of what we have today recorded in Jeremiah 1 through 25, as well as chapters 46 through 51. And so you can kind of take the content of those chapters and imagine if you yourself were going to have to write those out, right? Write out your own copy of all those chapters with your own paper and your own pen. And uh, how long would that take you? And, and then you might want to double check and make sure you got it right, okay? And then you're going to stand and publicly read it. So uh, don't get in a rush. Make sure you have excellent penmanship in order to, to read it. But 23 years of prophetic ministry are essentially the contents of uh, chapters 1 through 25 and chapters 46 through 51 of what we have today known as the book of Jeremiah in our Bibles. If you glance back to Jeremiah 25.3, you have another time setting here that is important for us. He says, From the thirteenth year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even to this day, these twenty-three years, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken to you again and again, but you have not listened. Okay? In Jeremiah, we call him the weeping prophet. He was the ignored prophet, the, the, the dismissed prophet. Uh, I, I don't know you know, how I would do or how a lot of pastors I know would do if, uh, you know, after 23 years, nobody's listening and uh, they haven't been listening the whole time. You know, at a certain point, I think humanity steps in and you just get discouraged and you walk away and you say, well, what's the point, right? Jeremiah never allowed himself to do that. He, and I'm sure he faced a ton of discouragement, but he continued to, to walk with the Lord and continued to stay faithful in, uh, in every application. And, uh, what, uh, what an example that we have there. So going back all the way to the 13th year of Josiah, and these are the things that we do when we do our Old Testament chronologies. Remember, they didn't date things like 609 B.C. or 605 B.C. That's not how calendars were back then. But they would mark things by the reign of the king. So a new king becomes a king, and we start the calendar over again. This is now the first year of his reign, if, uh, if your culture is following the ascension year system. Otherwise, it's not the first year of his reign until the next year. And in some cases, there's a zero year. The Babylonian model, for example, did not count the ascension year as the first year. And so that becomes a, a, a quirk that you have to be careful with. Otherwise, you end up with what you think are contradictions in the text. Um, if you want more on that, I mean, we can plunge into some... There's some minutiae in this chapter. For example... In, in between verse 1 and verse 9, we think, wow, a ton of time has gone by. From the fourth year to the fifth year, how long did it take to write the scroll? It may not have been so long. Because uh, using the, the Tishri to Tishri dating is one thing, but using Nisan to Nisan is another. And it's quite possible that we have switched calendars from verse 1 to verse 9. And so it may have only taken three months and, and, and already be in the, the next year in the, in the ninth month. But that's probably more confusing and was not worth taking the time to explain this morning. But when they, when, they st when they stipulate the month, when they say in the ninth month, anytime they do that in the Hebrew text, you have to go back to the Nisan to Nisan calendar, the one that starts in the spring, not the one that starts in the fall. Although when you're talking about the year of his reign, the fourth year of his reign, the fifth year of his reign, their civil years started in the fall, not in the spring. And so it's quirky. Uh, I don't like it. Most of us don't like it. We like January to December and keep it simple, okay? And we're, we're 2016. Next year will be 2017. Just keep adding a number and, and go with it. Um, it was not that simple in, uh, in the ancient world. Anyway, 
as far as that goes. To take every message ever delivered and to write it down, what kind of memory does that require? You know, do you remember a message you gave 23 years ago? I don't. I don't remember last week. And uh, you know, I have to listen to the MP3 to remind myself of something that was said. Um, but thankfully, though, the Holy Spirit specializes in memory. That the Holy Spirit, Jesus promised the disciples, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will remind you of all things that I myself have spoken. And so we have divine empowerment for the writing of Scripture. And that shouldn't surprise us because that's always the case as the Bible is being written. All right. But now we get into some discomfort. You can imagine Jeremiah saying, oh, good news, Baruch, thank you for all your work. And, uh, you know, a scribe likes to be behind the scenes, you know, a scribe would love to just, you know, write stuff down, hand it to the prophet, let the prophet go out and preach it. Problem is, Jeremiah can't go preach it. He needs Baruch to step up. Jeremiah's restrictions required Baruch to step forward from a scribal role to a preaching role. And right then and there, a lot of us would raise our hands and say, excuse me, uh, no, thank you. (laughs) I'd like to be excused. I didn't sign up for this. I'm a scribe, not a preacher. So verse 5, and I love this, Jeremiah commanded Baruch saying, I am restricted. Don't know all the details of which of the prison moments was this and what basis was he banned? Was he under a ban? He could, he was not allowed into the temple at this point. We don't entirely know, but it says, I am restricted. I cannot go into the house of the Lord. So you go. And read from the scroll which you have written at my dictation the words of the Lord to the, to the people in the Lord's house on a fast day. All right, And also you shall read them to all the people of Judah who come from their cities. And so whenever the next fa- uh, fast day arrives, whenever a fast is called, and uh, prior to the captivity there weren't many fasts called whatsoever. They were called occasionally, rarely. They were called uh, for special occasions, typically by the king, or uh, possibly by a high priest, somebody that had a spiritual mindedness to uh, to admonish the Jewish people, say, man, we need a time of prayer. We need a time of prayer. We need a time of fasting. We need to get serious and humble before the Lord. We need to call a solemn fast. So uh, Jeremiah says, when, when this fast gets called, you need to be there in the temple with this scroll, and you need to read it to everybody. Verse 7, perhaps their supplication will come before the Lord and everyone will turn from his evil way for great is the anger and the wrath that the Lord has pronounced against this people. And so, can you imagine such a thing? And and, and the the, the humility and, and the faith of Baruch to step forward like this. For Jeremiah to say, I can't do this. You need to carry the torch. You need to, he's passing the baton, right? And Baruch has to step up. And, and, you know, if we knew more, I guess, you know, God didn't see fit to, to give us more detail about what the restriction was or why Jeremiah couldn't preach. But this was an occasion that he couldn't do it. And so Baruch had to step up. Yeah, I'm sure he felt unqualified. I'm sure he felt, I mean, compared to a, a speaking prophet with 23 years in ministry, you know, how would you like to just take, you know, fill his shoes for an afternoon? You know, he's, he's been in the ministry all these years and, and you're going to preach your first sermon. What are you going to do? Well, you're going to obey is what you're going to do. The prophet told you to do it. So verse 8, Baruch, the son of Neriah, did, according to all that Jeremiah, the prophet, commanded him, reading from the book or from the scroll, the safer, the, not a book as we understand it. That was a Christian invention in the first century, the codex. But reading from the scroll, 
the words of the Lord in the Lord's house. And so he's faithful and he does it. All right, so this is uh, the details then that we get in uh, the verses that follow. Uh, Verse 9 says, Now in the fifth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, the ninth month, all the people in Jerusalem and all the people who came from the cities of Judah to Jerusalem proclaimed a fast before the Lord. Then Baruch read from the book of the words of Jeremiah in the house of the Lord, in the chamber of Gamaria. Keep that name in mind. All these names. Our heads are going to spin with names this morning. But I put a chart on the wall and we'll we'll do okay with it. Um, the chamber of Gamaria, the son of Shaphan the scribe, in the upper court at the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house to all the people. And uh, this is where he's going to preach it. And everyone gets to hear it while he's there. Now... Then we get to verse 11. Micaiah, the son of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, heard all the words of the Lord from the book. And he's going to go give a report to uh, the king's house. Before we get that far, though, some considerations here. Training the next generation is a never-ending preparation for stepping up as needed. Training the next generation is a never-ending preparation for stepping up as needed. I tell you, I stepped out of my, I took the trash out this morning, out the back door and felt how cold it was and thought, man, I ought to call my assistant pastor, let him fill in for me this morning. Then I realized, oh, I don't have an assistant pastor. All right. Well, I got a young man in training. Let's use him. But okay, cold as it is, there was no ice. We can, we can handle it. But stepping up as needed. And I think the house of Shaphan is a, is an interesting illustration of this particularly if ministry is in your family, if ministry is in your tradition. And uh, a fellow I knew that uh, whose father was a, was a pastor, whose grandfather was a pastor, whose great-grandfather was a pastor. In fact, he could trace seven generations of pastors going back in his family tree. And so you would ask a guy like that, well, why aren't you a pastor? Okay, it's not my spiritual gift. <laughs> oh, good answer. All right. And uh, true story, by the way. Uh, but the uh, the house of Shaphan, I think, illustrates this really well. When you think about Shaphan, come on, click, don't do that. I forgot to put my clicker on. So we'll do this. The house of Shaphan. Now this is a, a fascinating study, and it's one that we don't spend a ton of time with. I mean, seriously, you ever heard of Shaphan before? Who's heard of, the, of this family? This line of scribes. Interestingly enough, this chapter features a scribe, Baruch, but it really features a family of scribes and the blessing that they were for multiple generations. Shaphan was the scribe for King Josiah. And when, King Jos- when, the, when the law was found, after many, many years of absence, when the law was found, Shaphan is the one that read the, the book of the law during uh, King Josiah's time. And you can go back to 2 Kings chapter 22. We encourage you during the week or whenever you have availability to go back and read that chapter. In 2 Kings 22, when after years and years and years of of forgetting about the law, uh, forgetting about Torah, forgetting about the word of God as written through Moses, uh, all of a sudden the the high priest in the temple says, wow, look what I found, (laughs) right? You clean out your garage one day and go, oh, I forgot I had that. And uh, for Israel in the temple, it was the Torah. It was the law. 
And so clearly, I mean, how apostate do you have to be if you haven't seen the law in, in a decade or two decades or a century? How long has it been lost, see, for it to be found like this during the reign of King Josiah? So Shaphan was the scribe. Now, Shaphan has a number of sons, including Ahikam. And uh, you might recall, he's the one that stepped up and, and prevented Jeremiah from getting executed. About 10 weeks ago, when we were in chapter 26, there was an effort to execute Jeremiah, but Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, stepped up and said no, and actually provided a defense and protected Jeremiah on that occasion. That same boy, by the way, has a son that we're not going to be introduced to for, for some time, actually a few more weeks, in, in Jeremiah 39. Uh, he's the one that's going to be appointed as the governor over the, the rabble left behind after the destruction of Jerusalem. When Jerusalem is destroyed and almost everyone is carried away, the only folks left behind are the absolute uh, destitute of the land. The homeless, the vagrants, the destitute, they're left behind and Gedaliah is appointed to, to be governor over them, over the rabble, which we'll talk about uh, in three weeks. So that's uh, not a Christmas message either. But we'll, uh, we'll learn about Gedaliah in, uh, at that time. The son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, the scribe. We also have the younger brother to Ahikam. We have Gamariah. And uh, does that name sound familiar? Gamariah, Gamariah. Where did I hear that? Where did I hear that? Well, just a couple minutes ago, it was his chamber that Baruch went to read this thing in. We had just read in the chambers here uh, is where this reading took place. In the chamber of Gamariah, the son of Shaphan, the scribe, in the upper court at the entry of the new gate. And so, uh, and we'll see him also later in this chapter. He's he's going to step up and and beg the king not to burn the scroll. When uh, when kings the king is chopping it up and ready to throw it in the fire, uh, this scribe steps up and begs the king, "Don't do that! Don't do that!" So we'll see Gamaria uh, in verse twenty five of uh, of this chapter. Gamaria has a son named Micaiah, and we see him. Uh, in verse 11, he's running off to report to his dad and to the uh, officials. We'll see him here in this chapter. There's another brother named Elasa, and he's the one that was assigned to carry the correspondence. Remember, they didn't have Twitter or Facebook or email or, you know, if they wanted to get news to Babylon, what happened? Well, feet had to go, okay? People feet or donkey feet or camel feet or some kind of feet or a ship had to sail. You know, that's, that's how news traveled, uh, by ship or by feet. And it was Elasa, his feet, that took Jeremiah's letter uh, to the exiles in Babylon back in chapter 29, as we looked at that. Finally then, every family has a black sheep, <laughs> right? Uh, sadly, Jazaniah. Jazaniah uh, is featured in the book of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel, uh, the prophet, and soul. How, uh, how miraculous is that? Only God can look upon the heart. Only God can look within the soul. But in some of Ezekiel's travels, he went through space, he went through time, he entered into the temple, and I believe he entered into this man's soul in uh, a pretty extraordinary way. Anyway, this is the line of Shephan. And uh, so you think about what we're doing as we um, train up the next generation. We should be preparing for the next generation to take over. We should always have men in training, women in training, believers ready to step up. Because who knows when they're going to be tasked to, uh, to do such a thing. We have several other biblical examples, of course, including Joshua. You know, after Moses leads people out of Egypt, you think, well, you know, what a, what a perfect leader. He led them for 40 years through the wilderness, led them right to the boundary of the promised land, but he wasn't allowed to enter the promised land. He died there at Mount Pisgah, and, and he could see it but not enter into it. 
And so Joshua has to step up. And and yet we have it. Be strong and be courageous, it says in Joshua chapter 1. I like these stories. I like watching um, promotions and another generation step forward. Men in training. In a lot of ways, uh, Joshua was training before he knew he was training. Because he was the attendant of Moses from his youth. And you can imagine in his childhood, you know, just being an attendant. That's not glamorous. That's not, uh, you know, exciting or, or sexy or whatever. I mean, it's just you're pitching a tent, you're laying out a cot, you're, you're doing the laundry, you're, you're fixing breakfast, you're brewing the coffee. You're, uh, you're Moses' attendant from his youth. Well, guess what? The attendant eavesdrops an awful lot, and he hears an awful lot, and he learns an awful lot. And then by the time he steps forward in his own generation, he, guess what? He's a, tri- he's a prince of the tribe of Ephraim. He gets to go forward as a spy into the land, and, and he's learned a lot. And then he's going to, of course, take Israel into the land 40 years later. Anyway, Joshua 1, verses 1 through 9. Um, uh, verse 2, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, cross this Jordan, you and all the people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. All right? Moses is dead. Get over it. Move on. Next generation. And, uh, you know, uh, helping a... Uh, a church look for their next pastor and they don't want a next pastor. They want their old pastor back. Well, he's sorry. He's in heaven. He's not coming back. You got to get the next guy. And then trying to find a clone of the last guy is a mistake too. Get a new guy. Get a young guy. And uh, aspects there. Only be strong and courageous. Be careful to do all according to the law which uh, Moses, my servant, commanded you. Verse 8, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Whether it's a king or a high priest or a military leader or a general or president, whoever it is, you want them first and foremost to be a disciple of the Word of God, to be oriented to the truth of God's Word. And of course, that'll have benefit in temporal life. Have I not commanded you, verse 9, be strong and courageous, do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. You can have faith knowing that if God has appointed you to a task, he has a reason for why he's done that. He knows what he's doing. God is not stupid. God, uh, God put Baruch where he wanted Baruch. He, wanted, he knew that Jeremiah was going to preach. He knew that Baruch was going to preach. And this was going to happen in this chapter. And God knows what he's doing. So trust God knows what he's doing and be obedient. Step forward and be obedient. Timothy is another great example of this. 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 1 through 8 in the New Testament is the illustration here. And I think Timothy was probably 10 years old. 10 years old, 12 years old. At whatever age he was, let me get to 1 Thessalonians here. Paul can't go back into Thessalonica. And so we read about it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. This is on the second missionary journey. It's Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. And Paul's an apostle. Silvanus is a prophet. They're both older men. Timothy's a young man. All right? And maybe not 10, but maybe he's certainly not 20. And it's going to be, you know, how many years after this that Paul says, let no one look down on thy youth. Right? That's clear in the 60s in in, in, uh, the writing of 1 Timothy. And so if he's still a youth in the 60s, how youth 
more youthful is he in the in the early 50s in 50 or 52 AD okay so subtract uh, 12 years minus let no one despise thy youth and and he's even more youthful in this episode and so he says, for this reason, therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, this kid, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. All right. And sometimes you can forget how young people are when they've been in ministry as long as they've been in ministry. You know, my son, for example, had his first Greek class at the age of 10. I keep forgetting you know, he's been preparing for this for 14 years now. Why isn't he a pastor yet? Oh, yeah, he's still the age that he is. I keep forgetting. Here's Timothy, though. And look at his ministry. God's brother, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. Verse 4 says, even indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. So it came to pass, as you know. Timothy's got a pretty easy duty. He just has to show up and be the I told you so, right? He, or be the Paul told you so. He gets to show up and say, hey, Paul told you this was going to happen. And then reinforce it, teach it, encourage them in everything that Paul had taught. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Notice there was some investigation going on as well. Timothy was not just tasked to show up and preach some stuff and, and encourage them, but also to investigate where they were, to look into their spiritual condition, to evaluate their vulnerability to satanic temptation. And uh, Tim- Timothy wouldn't be suited to do that unless he himself was, was very equipped and trained in, in leadership to do such things. And this is what he's being asked to do. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news, so Timothy is the one that had to do the, the back and forth, the, 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 the foot journeying from Athens to Thessalonica and back to Athens again. It's not just, uh, you know, an instant message on your cell phone. Hey, how you doing? Okay. We are so spoiled today. So spoiled. You get an email, you get a note, you get a whatever. So you text them, hey, praying for you, how you doing? And you get an update. You don't have to send Timothy walking from Athens to Thessalonica and then walking back from Thessalonica to Athens. We're talking weeks to to travel this kind of distance, 15 miles a day. All right. So now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us, just as we also long to see you, for this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. All right, so here's another example. Joshua, Timothy, I mean, countless examples. Elisha following Elijah, countless examples where believers stepped up, and we should always be about that. All right, what were these fasts about? So a special fast were called a solemn assemblies on solemn occasions. You might recall, we replicated a little bit of this. Do you remember what we did before we moved into this building? Do you remember what we did when we broke ground before we moved, even moved into this building? We had a whole lot of prayer time, did we not? 
In fact, on one occasion, we scheduled, some of you participated, a lot of you here participated in that. We had a 24-hour prayer vigil. The city didn't let us occupy the building yet. We couldn't have church services. So we, we just had prolonged building inspections. And uh, we sent people into this place over a 24-hour span, and we prayed in this property. On a, and, and patterned after, modeled after, and maybe you weren't aware, I was, in my thinking, modeled after occasions such as this. Proclaim a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly. And we pray over, uh, you know, a, a, momentous, a momentous event, something in the history of a local church, like the, the construction of a new facility, for example, or the ordination of a new pastor with Pastor Cliff or Pastor Dan and the, the prayer and the fasting that goes on. Not just an Old Testament principle, a New Testament principle as well and so you can read in second chronicles chapter 20 you can read about this or joel second chronicles grab some of these second chronicles chapter 20 and you know who calls for such a thing can just any anybody call for such a thing well Ideally, it's leadership that starts it, but I think in our chapter today, it's the people themselves that call it. It's the people themselves that call for the fasting and the prayer and the solemn assembly because their king certainly isn't going to. Jehoiakim doesn't have the spiritual mindedness to do such a thing. So um, Judah gets invaded here. I'm reading from Second Chronicles chapter 20. It was uh, came about... After this, the sons of Moab and the sons of Ammon together with some of the Muonites came to make war against Jehoshaphat. And some came and reported Jehoshaphat saying, a great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, out of Aram, and behold, they are in Hazan Tamar, that is, En Gedi. And so here's a godly king. What does he do? Jehoshaphat was afraid and turned his attention to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. Man, this is serious. We've got to get to prayer. This is serious. He doesn't say, call my generals, call my armies, let's do something. He says, let's get, let's get everybody on board praying about this. So Judah gathered together to seek help from the Lord. They even came from all the cities of Judah to seek the Lord. And then, yes, they gathered their armies together and they defended themselves. But they started by seeking the Lord, calling a fast, calling a solemn assembly, proclaiming a fast throughout all Judah. The prophet Joel, this comes up in chapter 1, it comes up again in chapter 2. Proclaim a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly. Amos, Obadiah, Daniel, Hosea, Joel. Joel 1.14 Consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land. You want your tribal elders, your clan elders, your household elders to be leading this. And all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord, alas for the day. (laughs) For the day of the Lord is near. It will come about as destruction from the Almighty. Chapter 2 as well, verse 12 and verse 15. Yet even now, declares the Lord, We have all these verses of judgment in verses 1 through 11. Look how verse 11 says, The the, the Lord utters His voice before His army. Surely His camp is very great, for strong is He who carries out His word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. 
who can endure it yet even now? Even with the greatest wrath ever inflicted upon the earth in the tribulation of Israel, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. And as long as I'm here, grab verse 13 as well. It's on the next point on the next slide, but grab it now. Repentance has to be true repentance from the heart, not just a fast, not just a, a, a phony ritual, not just an external thing. He says in verse 13, And rend your heart and not your garments, and return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, relenting of evil, and who knows whether or not He will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind Him. What happens on the other side of this wrath? Verse 15, Blow a trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly. You know, if we had something urgent here, if we had something just so urgent, uh, some, something was going on, and you get the email chain to pray about this, and not only pray about this, let, let's take the next seven days and let's just fast, all of us, the entire assembly. Such things do happen, okay? And, uh, and it's consistent with a pattern that we have in the Scriptures. Of course, the reminder, true repentance comes not in the external forms, but through the true repentance of the heart. We already read Joel 2, 13, rend your heart and not your garments. Or in the confession of David in Psalm 51. Okay, in Psalm 51, he says, yeah, goats aren't going to cover this. <laughs> okay, you don't want the sacrifice of God. You know, can, is he able to bring a ritual? Is he able to bring an animal ritual and make everything Okay. He's committed adultery with Bathsheba. He's murdered Uriah. He's, he's ruined his, his kingdom and his ministry. Psalm 51, 17. Verse 16 says, You do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. See, the Levitical animal offerings were never intended for the, the willful sinning that David is expressing here in this chapter. The, uh, there, there is no sacrifice for the, the willful defiance of the law. He is an adulterer. He's a murderer. He should be stoned twice over. And God in His grace is going to forgive him and restore him and allow him to remain on as king. And uh, there, is no, there is no Levitical ritual he could bring. Nothing. There is nothing that a, that a Levitical priesthood can do for him. All he can do is throw himself on the Lord's mercy for this grace, for this forgiveness. The true repentance is from the heart. The broken spirit, the broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. And so David is restored to fellowship on the basis of this repentance. See, and I hope we get this. Dan Cross spent how many lessons trying to preach this? And I'm not sure who was listening. All right, from the first John series. And, and, and if you've got a, a mechanical view of 1 John 1, 9, that all you've got to do is just a ritual of, Dear Heavenly Father, I did this, in Jesus' name, amen. And without the heart repentance, that prayer is not homologeo confession. Homologeo requires the homo, requires the same as, requires that you say the same thing that God says with respect to that sin, the agreement with respect to that sin. Proverbs says, confess and forsake. Confess and forsake. 
in any event, I encourage you to get those First John files off the website that uh, Dan Craw was teaching because he was hammering it hard. I'm sitting back there in the amen corner going, yeah, preach it because it was right on target. All right. Then we get to the politics. And that's always fun. Okay. Jeremiah, or not Jeremiah, Baruch is not done having read the scroll in uh, the chambers here. He's not done. There's more work to be done. The politicians get involved and then it really gets ugly. All right. Verses 11 through 26, really the bulk of this chapter here now, because Micaiah, the son of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, heard all the words of the Lord from the book. So he went down to the king's house, into the scribe's chamber, and behold, all the officials were sitting there. Now, why weren't they in church? Never mind. And all the officials were sitting there, Elishama, the scribe, and Deliah, the son of Shemaiah, and Elnathan, the son of Akbor, and Gamariah, the son of Shaphan, and Zedekiah, the son of Hananiah, and all the other officials. You almost need a scoreboard for these guys too, don't you? And Micaiah declared to them all the words that he had heard when Baruch read from the book to the people. What was his memory like? He gets to recite now what he just heard. Then all the officials sent Jehudi, the son of Nathaniah, the son of Shelemiah, the son of Cushi, to Baruch, saying, Take in your hand the scroll from which you have read to the people and come. So Baruch, the son of Neriah, took the scroll in his hand and went to them. Now what kind of trouble is he in? It's like an arrest warrant. You and the scroll, come. They're being summoned to appear. Baruch and his scroll. And so he goes. And uh, so they asked Baruch, let's see here. Uh, They said to him, sit down, please, and read it to us. So Baruch read it to them. That's the second time to go through it now, (laughs) okay? And he's probably going to get pretty good at this. When they heard all the words, they turned in fear one to another and said to Baruch, we will surely report all these words to the king. Why is he not in church? (laughs) You know, this fast has been called. They're all getting together on a fast day in a solemn assembly. Why is the king not in the temple? Why are these scribes not in the temple? All right, we will surely report all these words to the king. And they asked Baruch, saying, Tell us, please, how did you write all these words? Was it at his dictation? And they want to be clear. Is this just a scribe's opinion? Is this just a scribe or a Pharisee or a rabbi or some guy that wrote a bunch of stuff down? Or is this coming from the mouth of of the Lord through his prophet? And we we learned he dictated all these words to me and I wrote them with ink on the book. And we, it's a little glimpse into canonicity, into the inspiration of Scripture, into the process involved as the Holy Spirit moves and as a prophet speaks. So then the officials said to Baruch, Go, hide yourself, you and Jeremiah, and do not let anyone know where you are. And so, uh, I don't know what you would call this. It's not an arrest warrant. It's a go hide yourself warrant, <laughs> right? It's a get lost. We don't want to know where you are. Go hide yourself. Don't tell us where you're hiding. Because when the king asks us, where are you? We want to be able to say, I don't know. Okay? It's uh, contrived uh, deniability here. I don't know where he is. Haven't seen him. Don't know where he is. And we're also, we're going to hide the scroll. Which I find interesting too. So they went to the king in the court. But they had deposited the scroll in the chamber of Elishama the scribe. I guess that's a good hiding place until Jehudi finds it. 
And they reported all the words to the king. Then the king sent Jehudi to get the scroll, and he took it out of the chamber of Elishama the scribe. The problem is, if you're going to hide something and too many witnesses know where you've hid it, then there's always going to be a Jehudi to go fetch it. And uh, Jehudi read it to the king as well as to all the officials who stood beside the king. The king was sitting in the winter house in the ninth month with a fire burning in the brazier before him. Kind of a fun day to read a verse like this, right? Summer house and a winter house and in different places it get cold and this is where he is. And when Jehudi had read three or four columns, the king cut it with a scribe's knife and threw it into the fire that was in the brazier until all the scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the brazier. And you think about it. This is an interesting uh, process involved. You know, you've got a scroll. The scroll is already flammable. I mean, because it's a scroll, right? Just grab the thing out of Jehudi's hands and toss it in. Simple. But that's not what he's doing. He's taking out his knife and he's slicing it line by line. He's slicing it. Oh, you've read down to this point? Slice it off. Burn it. You want to read some more? Slice it off. Burn it. And he's very defiantly, not just chucking it, okay? That'd be bad enough. But slicing it line by line and rejecting every last bit. Yeah, he's uh, throwing his kingly temper tantrum here and what a what a, uh, I don't know, he's not impressing the Lord, I say. He's not impressing me. I'm not sure who he thought he was trying to impress. But uh, this is what he does here. And so, uh, verse 24, Yet the king and all his servants who heard all these words were not afraid, nor did they rend their garments. They were not impacted like Micaiah was impacted, like the scribes were impacted. Even though Elnathan and Deliah and Gamaria pleaded with the king, not to burn the scroll. He would not listen to them. And so the king commanded Jeremiel, the king's son. And who was this guy anyway? Jeremiel? You ever heard of him? I thought his son was Jehoiachin. Wasn't it Jehoiachin that followed Jehoiakim? It was another descendant, another son. And yet, uh, not one we learn about, not one that ever takes a throne. And Sariah, the son of Azrael, and Shelemiah, the son of Abdeel, to seize Baruch the scribe and Jeremiah the prophet. But the Lord hid them. The Lord hid them. And so uh, then for the rest of the chapter, 27 and following, um, Jeremiah's got to do uh, what Moses had to do. Had to replace the smashed tablets, right? Have to replace the burned scroll. All right, write it down again. And so Baruch's long day isn't over yet. He's got to sit down and write it out again, whatever length of time it takes, okay? Or how many days it takes or however long it takes in, uh, in the process here. Hiding the human authors would prevent Jehoiakim from another Uriah incident. And this, by the way, is not Uriah the Hittite. This is Uriah, the, uh, the guy that Jer- uh, Jehoiakim killed, <laughs> okay? And I know... Back in Jeremiah 26, we ran out of time and couldn't read that entire paragraph. But in Jeremiah 26, 10 weeks ago, there was a story Jeremiah was telling about a a prophet that Jehoiakim executed. Jeremiah 26, this king is just wicked, doesn't like hearing the word of God, doesn't like faithful prophets. He wants to hear what he wants to hear. And the people that tell him what he wants to hear can live. And the people that tell him what he doesn't want to hear, well, they've got to they be killed. 
uh, Jeremiah 26. Indeed, there was also a man who prophesied in the name of the Lord, Uriah, the son of Shemaiah from Kiriath-Jerim. And he prophesied against this city and against this land, words similar to all those of Jeremiah. And when King Jehoiakim and all his mighty men and all the officials heard these words, then the king sought to put him to death. But Uriah heard it and he was afraid and he fled and he went to Egypt. But King Jehoiakim sent men to Egypt. And notice who he sends. A character we just read about in chapter 36 today, El Nathan, the son of Akbor, and certain men with him went to Egypt. He is the king's official bounty hunter, right? Executioner, track these guys down. I imagine this is probably the, the great hero that Saul of Tarsus had in mind when he said, yeah, I can be like an El Nathan. I can go to foreign cities. I can track down renegades and have them put to death all in the service of the Lord. And so they hunted him down. They brought Uriah from Egypt and led him to the king Jehoiakim who slew him with a sword and cast his dead body into the burial place of the common people. And this is where Ahikam steps up. The hand of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, was with Jeremiah so that he was not given into the hands of the people to put him to death. So that was just 10 weeks ago. We saw a couple of glimpses there. These characters are coming back now, part of the Jehoiakim administration, Right? Well, hiding the human authors would prevent Jehoiakim from another Uriah incident. It would protect Baruch and Jeremiah. Keeping the scroll hidden. Well, well, what was the purpose of this? Keeping the scroll hidden could be for safekeeping, but would also leave Judah vulnerable to forgetfulness of the word of God. You wonder, was the, the reason why the scroll was stashed, was it to pr- protect it against uh, an, an Ahab or a Jezebel or a Queen Athaliah or somebody? Well, why did they? Why did the? Why did the Torah get lost until the days of Josiah anyway? Was it originally hidden away for safekeeping and then forgotten, out of sight, out of mind? Second Kings twenty-two verses eight through ten. Let me tell you, no matter how unpleasant a Bible passage is, hiding it is not the answer. Right? Ignoring it doesn't work. Pretending you don't know where it is doesn't help. It's in the scripture. We need to deal with it. We need to humble ourselves before the living and abiding word of God. Burning the scroll piece by piece shows an utter defiance in the spirit and tradition of Lamech. Piece by piece. And with every piece, he's compounding his rebellion. Burning the scroll piece by piece shows an utter defiance in the spirit and tradition of Lamech. See, defiance, all it does is get worse and worse and worse. And you can imagine slicing it off with his knife, defying the Lord God. Slicing it off with a knife, defying the Lord God. Just multiplying his own discipline over and over again with every act of rebellion. If you're not familiar with Lamech, uh, it's an interesting legend. It's an, well, it's a Bible story in, in Genesis 4. And the rabbinic traditions and legends on this are, are noteworthy, and I, I accept them. I think they're, they're valid. They make sense to me. But um, I don't have to spend a ton of time on this, but do you remember what I'm talking about, Jeremiah, uh, Genesis chapter 4? Think about it. What's Genesis 4? Cain killed Abel, Right? Genesis 1 and 2, creation. Genesis 3, the fall. Genesis 4, Cain killed Abel. So Cain murders Abel. 
And in the process here of his, of his judgment, God in his grace puts a mark on Cain and protects Cain from human vengeance. Puts a mark on Cain and says, if anyone kills Cain, uh, he says, uh, you know, no one will come upon you. And there's a mark placed on him here for his protection. You, you get a glimpse of that in verse 15. The Lord said to him, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain that no one finding him would slay him. Some kind of a seal or a sign or a mark, maybe on his forehead or something that made him, hey, I belong to the Lord, hands off. <laughs> okay? But then what happens in following generations, the example of Cain gets worse. The line of Cain degenerates. And so Cain has relations and here comes Enoch, not the Enoch you're thinking of, a, a wicked Enoch. And then Enoch builds a city after his name and calls the city Enoch. And then was born Irad, and then Mahujael, and Mahujael gives birth to Methushael, and Methushael became the father of Lamech. And it's just getting uglier and uglier and uglier in all these generations. And Lamech took to himself two wives, Ada and Zillah, okay? And all these kids. Now notice, the uh, Lamech said to his wives in verse 23, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Do you hear the scorn? Do you hear the defilement? Do you hear the, the absolute rejection of the word of God? That he is now the champion murderer and he's defying any kind of vengeance? In any event, the, it doesn't say so in the text, but the tradition is that the rabbis all felt that the man he murdered was Cain. That he, the man he murdered was Cain himself. And that he's living in open defiance and, and, and mocking scorn. That uh, his own vengeance will now be 77-fold if anyone dares to, uh, to lay a hand on him. Kind of a thing. Anyway... So when you, when you're talking about people that are so deranged and so out of their mind with hatred for God, with hatred for his word, I think we have a good picture of that here in our chapter today with not content to just grab it out of the guy's hand and throw it in the fire <laughs> or to order a guard, burn that thing, right? No, he grabs himself and then with his knife, he cuts it off piece by piece by piece, burning each piece as he goes. Well, God's word is not so easily destroyed as we know. God's word is not so easily destroyed. You can burn a Bible, you can burn a, uh, a scroll. God's word abides forever, as we well know. Smashing tablets or burning scrolls, well, they can be replaced. <laughs> okay, Smashing tablets or burning scrolls, futile human attempts at destruction. And Moses, in the case of smashing the tablets... It was his own temper that got a hold of him, and so Moses himself had to write the second, had to carve out the second set of tablets. In Jeremiah's case, uh, poor Baruch had to, had to, he had to, Jeremiah had to redictate, and Baruch had to rewrite the scroll that was burned. And we see this here in verses 27 through 32. Jeremiah took another scroll and gave it to Baruch, the son of Neriah, the scribe. He wrote on it at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the book which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned with fire. And not only that, many similar words were added to them. 
additional prophecies given, additional words added, probably including even these other verses here as well in 27 through uh, 31 that speaks of the divine judgment upon the house of Jehoiakim. The word of God abides forever, which we know. The word of God abides forever. I've got to close. Psalm 119 and verse 89, forever, O Lord, is thy word established, right? Established. Isaiah, uh, Psalm 119 and verse 89, forever. Try to stamp it out all you want, mock it all you want. You know, we encounter it. We encounter it with Bible skeptics to this day, unbelievers, other God-haters that think that this thing is the biggest bunch of mythology or malarkey or whatever. And you and I are wasting our time. Why do we bother reading such things? Well, this is going to be here long after they're not. Okay, Every mocker, every skeptic is going to bend the knee. They will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. They have a destiny that this book writes about. And they can ignore it. They can hide it. They can, they can run from it. But the word of God does abide forever. Psalm 119. This would have been a good hymn to sing today. I didn't think about it. But the Bible stands. Psalm 119 and verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is is settled or fixed, established in heaven. Your faithfulness continues throughout all generations. Generations come, generations go. But guess what? We still got the word of God. Long after we're gone, our kids, our grandkids, they're going to have the word of God. We've got to have them grounded in scripture. Isaiah 40 and verse 8. This is Pastor Cliff's call to worship. Isaiah 40, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And then finally, Matthew 24, 35, not one jot or tittle, right? Matthew 24 and verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. You know, that heavens and earth are going to be destroyed by fire. All things are going to be made new. But what will survive? The Word of God. It's eternal. It's eternal. All right. Let's close in prayer and then we'll dismiss with our closing hymn. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for the truth of your Word and the blessing that we have to assemble together. I thank you for the prophet Jeremiah. And hard to imagine this was written all those years ago, Father. It seems like current events. It seems like uh, there's people that hate your word and reject it. It seems like uh, there's politicians that have no spiritual mindedness. But Father, uh, I thank you for these lessons. I thank you for the example of Baruch stepping up, entering into a new phase of ministry that maybe he wasn't comfortable with, but there it was. And I thank you for all these lessons. And I thank you for Jeremiah and for his faithfulness. 23 years of being ignored, but he continues on. He's going to outlast Jehoiakim. He's going to outlast Jehoiachin. He's going to outlast Zedekiah. He's going to outlast Gedaliah. And all these things, Father, Jeremiah stays faithful. And I pray that we might learn from that example. We, We ourselves might become imitators in our own generation. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ, most precious and holy name. Amen.